0: Namo Tasa Bhagavato arahato sama sambuttasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa Budhang Tamang So I was uh, thinking what I should speak about tonight, and I, I like to, you know, summarize things because that really helps me, you know, to uh, have a, like a map. What I'm, you know, operating inside of, and gives me a, um, somewhere you know to start from, and I think you know the Buddha's teaching is uh, very much, you know, trying to supply different kinds of of maps which help us, you know, to look at our experience, because you know if we are not having any guidance. It, it seems to be, you know, that we are um, very complex beings you know, in a in a complex world. And if we don't have any guidance where to start to look, it's it's very difficult, you know, to, to find an inroad into this um, complex uh, experience we have. And I was saying today a few times, I think. When I was giving the the meditation guidance, you know, to use our experience as a incentive to open up rather than to to shut down, and that's in for me one way of to summarize the teaching. You know, we can either you know get really caught up with our own experience and and kind of become it and and. Uh, you know, become a real tangle, a real tight knot, which is all about me and myself and my pain and my fear and my this and my that. And it can become, you know, it can become a real downward spiral, which takes us, you know, ever deeper into a misery, misery and into um, identification with that misery. But if we... Just even in our posture, you know if we have a difficult emotional experience and if we don't kind of cave in around that experience, but if we kind of sit up and, and open up to the experience is a complete it's completely different it's a completely different uh, way of meeting it and then very quickly you know we become aware that there's much more than just that contraction and that you know, me not getting what I want or me having what I don't want. It's, it's a visceral experience of, that we are actually just a, a process which is dependent on a, on a much bigger field within which that process is happening. And, and the teaching of the Buddha offers us different uh, you know, avenues to realize these insights to make it our own, not just, you know, reading it or hearing it, but experiencing it in our own body and mind. And, uh, you know, one big template are the the four foundations of mindfulness. We can use those, you know, when we sit in meditation to to direct the mind in, in a way which leads to... Exactly that, you know, to open up our experience into a greater context, and to, you know, wake up from the delusion of separateness into the truth of non-separation. That this is all a, uh, you know, there's a there's a process going on which is limitless, and we cannot conceive of it, you know, with the with the thinking mind. And if we want to experience that truth we have to, you know, we have to forego the conceptual thinking mind because it cannot go there. And, you know, we can receive teachings which are of course, you know, uh, given with, with language and this is this concept because there's no other way how we can communicate mostly. I mean, there is also that people communicate the teachings with their presence, at least, you know, people who are very far along the path, who are really realized we can... we get a transmission just by being with them, you know, what's called, like, Darshan, or, you know, being in the presence of the Master. We are not, like, yet there, so we can't really give you much of that. But we can... we can... uh, you know, share the insights which we have had through uh, practicing for over, tw- uh, for about 20 years now and we but just, you know, receiving the teachings and then looking into our own experience and recognizing the teachings happening in our own experience. And you now there are four foundations of mindfulness. There's like four different, you know, areas which anybody can access in their experience. And looking at them in a, in a certain way and then you know, allowing this uh, foundation of mindfulness to reveal itself to us. But just looking at it by being fully present with it and just in disentangling you know, what's really happening here, what's really happening, and what do I bring to it, you know, what do I project onto it. And for example, the, the first insight people usually have, the easiest, is, is uh, seeing impermanence. Because, you know, to our senses, uh, most uh, everything that you see in this room, maybe the flowers, not, but most, and the candle flames, but most everything else, you know, appears to be uh, solid, a solid thing, you know, which is just sitting here and not changing. And then the flowers, maybe over the week, we can see that they'll change and the flame is like constantly changing. But everything else, you know, doesn't really appear to be changing to to the sense organs we have. So we have to really, uh, you know, look deeper in order to be able to see that. And... For example, you know, the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. In Pali, it's called kaya, and there's you know many different instructions how to look at the body, and the one we were speaking about is you know looking at the, at the body breathing, and then if we, if you know stay with that uh, instruction long enough it reveals itself to us that this is not like a solid, um, unchanging entity, but it's a process. And then also we, you know, get instructions of looking at the body in the different postures and, you know, looking at the body in different activities, walking and eating and washing and putting on your shoes things like that. And then also, you know, looking uh, at the body in... Um, other instructions would be, you know, looking in the body in terms of its different uh, parts, like this the classic amount of parts is 32 body parts, you know, the lungs and the heart and the spleen and, and the entrails and the Food in the stomach and the everything else. So it's it's pretty um, interesting. We have a chant about that. We can maybe do it one day. So that's as a way looking at the body. And what that brings home is, is like it's not, not so beautiful as it as it looks it can look. You know, <laughs> if you just stay on the surface. So There's a way how we can, uh, you know, kind of cultivate a disenchantment with the body. And another way of looking at the body is um, to look at it in terms of its elements and what it's made of, like earth element, water element, fire element, and um, air element. So those those different elements, mm. and then also it starts to fall apart because it's obvious, you know, those elements they they come together for some time and then they they keep on changing and they're const- you know, the how they are put together, it keeps to change, and then age, dies and falls apart, and the elements go back to the elements, and there's nothing left. And then the last one is is contemplating um, a dead body, contemplating a corpse in different stages of um, decomposition. So you know, like looking at a fresh corpse and. L- going down the, the line until it's, you know, the bones fall apart and go back to the earth. So there's many, many different ways of looking at the body, and what they all drive home is, you know, this body doesn't belong to anybody. It's just temporarily, you know, coming together, and then when the time has come, it falls apart again. It doesn't belong to me, my body doesn't belong to me, it doesn't belong to anybody else, and it's just what it is uh, a temporary constellation of of elements and of parts and it's not in my control. I can't you know make have it the way I want it to have. I have a certain influence you know how much I eat, maybe can lose a bit of weight and eat well, and then I maybe be less ill There's a few things we can do but It has to die. And we don't know when it is. So, and really, you know, experiencing that really deeply in the meditation can help us to, you know, to get a bit more um, equilibrium and, you know, have a bit more space around having a body and not being so identified with it and knowing it for what it is it's a like a companion, you know, for some time and it's a good foundation for practice. But if we get carried away by by the surface of it, then it's it's really a a waste of time. So that's the first foundation, the body. And then the second foundation is feeling. In Pali it's called it's called Vedana. And that's that's as we have said many times already. You know, is a very crucial um, part of experience, feeling, because it has a huge power over us. You know, because we all want a lot of pleasant feelings, and we don't want unpleasant feelings. And we are ignorant of neutral feelings most of the time, because a lot of the time we are actually having neutral feelings, but we are not aware of them because we're only aware of the things which are really loud, you know, like really nice and really not nice. Then we pay attention, because of the really nice things, we want to have many, and we want to secure a future of lots of nice feelings, and we don't want to have unpleasant feelings. And, you know, our whole... Uh, and we share that with the animal realm, for sure. And I think we... They you are know, all six different realms of existence according to the Buddhist cosmology. I mean, they're all interested in pleasant feelings, not want unpleasant feelings. And the, according, you know, to karma, we have, you know, according to past deeds, we can have a lot of, if we have been very generous, then there is a likelihood, you know, that we have a lot of pleasant repercussions from that. So there is, you know there's a certain uh, control actually we, we have but it's, it's not, not a direct control but indirect control. And uh, so there's these three kinds of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant and neutral and they are also then again they are kind of divided into worldly and unworldly feelings Worldly pleasant feelings is like a you know, nice ice cream and nice um, music or something like that and, but, and unworldly would be you know, a, a pleasant experience in a meditation like a blissful meditation and an, un- and an unworldly, unpleasant feeling would be, you know, having a having regret about, um, you know, our practice, our spiritual practice, that's considered like an unworldly, unpleasant feeling. And an unworldly, neutral feeling would be, you know, having a high state of concentration where there is neither pleasure nor not his pleasure and, and it's just uh, equanimity. So these is different feelings but what they all share for sure is that they have a beginning, a middle and an end and they are also impermanent just like the body is impermanent. And then the next foundation of mindfulness is a uh, foundation of uh, Chitta mind, or like this is about the, the mood of the mind, like a, the general state of the mind at, at the moment we, we are looking at it. And it can either be you know, a mind filled with lust or not filled with lust, a mind filled with ill will or not, a mind uh, which is confused or not, So that's the three roots. And then the next one is a a mind which is contracted or not contracted or a mind which is distracted or not distracted. So different moods of the mind. And then we come to the more positive states. A mind which is uh, great and expansive. A mind which is... um, concentrated, or not concentrated, a mind which is uh, liberated or not liberated. So this is different you know, uh, moods of the mind and we can, we can know those. If we, if we bend you know, mindfulness towards the mind, we can know how the mind is in the moment and then you know, we know what we are bringing to our experience but very often it, it escapes us because if we are not you know, made aware of it, it's not something which comes easy. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is, is uh, mindfulness of Dhammas or mindfulness of phenomena. This is you know, kind of looking at our experience according to different lists, like Ayananda Bodhi was yesterday speaking about the five hindrances. That's one of those lists, you know, looking at your experience in terms of those five hindrances, which is um, desire, hatred, doubt, restlessness, and slot and torpor. You're seeing, you know, are they present in the mind or are they not present in the mind? And then another set would be, you know, looking at our experience in terms of uh, sense doors. You know, the ear and sound, the eye and sight, the mind and thoughts, the tongue and tastes, the body and touches, and the nose and odors, yeah. And as you have heard, you know, the mind is also just considered a sense in, in, according to the Buddhist uh, teachings. The mind is a sense and just like the ear, the ear hears sounds and the mind you know, has thoughts. So the mind is not given you know, like a special position as being you know, the ruler of all of this. It's just like one of the senses. And it's just like, you know, the nose um, experiences odors, thus the mind experiences thoughts. So this is nothing, you know, to be do, theoretically at least, you know, to be too, um identified with. Because a mind is just naturally throwing up thoughts. This is it's just what the mind does, so that's those four foundations: the body, the feelings, the moods of the mind, and the phenomena arising and ceasing in the mind so that's that's one way you know how we can start to disentangle our experience by you know cutting it up in in smaller bits and and then looking at those in the context of the big map, which the Buddha is giving us. And what he says is, you know, that all of those different bits, you know, I have been mentioning, they all function according to three fundamental laws of existence, or they are also sometimes they are called three signs. And there's nothing, whatsoever, you know, which is excluded from, from those three characteristics, <coughs> they, they, they are kind of ruling over all those little or big bits I have been mentioning just right before. And the first one is impermanence, they are all impermanent. Some, you know, are, we can't see the impermanence because the process is so slow. And some we can see it. And some we can't see again because it's so fast. So it, it just depends, you know. But f- for sure, you know, we can't trust the there's just the sense of our eyes in in, in 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 the context of impermanence. So for example, you know, if you are Having a torchlight and you go out in the night and then you just you know move like that with a torchlight, it looks like a like a ring of of light, but you know that's not a ring of light. It's just an optical illusion, and the same is, it is with with our bodies, for example. You know they appear to be like solid, but in reality they are not. But the 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 fastness with with which the you know the um, sub particles are changing, it's, it's much too fast, nobody can see that with the, with the eye. And the surface of the body, you know, the aging process, we can only see, you know, over, you know, if you would have, if you would have met me 10 years ago, you would certainly see a difference, but if you, thank you, so. <laughs> he's very kind, but if you would have met me just like an hour ago, I look pretty the same. So, it depends on how we are looking at it. And, you know, it's it's really, it 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 has so much to do what we are bringing to the experience. That is what the Buddha wants to make us experience by our own uh, insight, you know. Because then, once we have seen, you know, that, what we are seeing, once we have seen that what we are seeing depends on how we are looking, then it really gets interesting. The practice, you know, then this is like there's a little crack and the light shines through, and then we can just keep on going, you know, at this crack and make it bigger, and then there's more light coming in and more light coming in, and then at one point it just falls apart, and you know, depending on 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 our past life cultivation, I would say, you know, that for some people, they, you know, they come and they never meditated before and they sit down and they, after one week, you know, they have a a lot of insight, which other people, they practice for 30 years and nothing much happens. So, you know, it's, it's a mysterious process and... But nevertheless, you know, Even if if somebody looks like they had a very quick, a lot of fruit in the practice, that's only because they have been practicing at another time. Because everybody has to go the same path, you know. It's just like we don't know how much we have done in the past. So, that's something we we have to just, uh, you know, keep going. And... And see, you know how the practice unfolds. We can't force it. This is not possible. You know, we have to just uh, have what's called patient endurance. It's it's the most important ingredient for for the path. It's a very you know down to earth, very non flamboyant quality. And then sometimes you know we can have like an, a deep insight or have a you know real have a vision or or have some kind of a mysterious experience or mystical experience which can be very you know powerful open up the mind but you know we can't make that happen it happens sometimes and, and then most then we become very attached to it and try to have, have it again and then we can just go you know in circles for 20 years until we let go and just come back to patient endurance again. Because the path is, uh, has its own intelligence. And what it mostly, you know, is uh, working uh, working on is to support us, to, to let go of attachment. And, you know, if our attachments are really very strong, then we need sometimes really strong teachings in order to to get it, you know. So, you know, the, the understanding that what we bring to the experience is what we have to see clearly that this is just conditioning and because it is just conditioning and it has been, you know, made. It can be undone. And and the teaching is giving us a hand, you know, helping us to undo that which has been uh, You know, because of our karma, we have been born at a certain time to a certain family in a certain country with a certain culture, and we had a certain education and certain experiences and so on and so forth. And all of this, you know, is the luggage we bring to the present moment and a certain amount of that we we know through the practice because we know a certain level of our character but there's very deep unconscious material we don't know so we have to work our way you know into that material and you know out the other end and that, that can take a, a very long time and can be very confusing and uh, so it's very good, you know, to have teachings and have have guides who can help us to get through that territory without getting stuck in it. Either either getting stuck, you know, like in a you know in our fears, or, or or getting stuck in our dreams, you know, it, it depends. And sometimes, you know, having. Uh, too good, you know, too blissful meditation experiences or too many mysterious, you know, meditation experience is like a recipe for disaster, you know, it can be stuck for years trying to recreate a certain experience we have had or trying to kind of understand a certain experience we have had because some of them, they cannot be understood with the um, thinking mind. They're like traps, you know. They are just there to actually point out the attachment we have, and they are not there to be understood in terms of its of the content. That's also, you know, one of the uh, qualities of the teaching of the Buddha, that he was much more interested, you know, in. Uh, how we are meeting our experience then in the experience itself because that's where, where the you know where the potential for transformation lies because we can't control our experience, you don't know what's gonna happen next. But where you have you know where you do, where you can have an input is how are you meeting what is happening next. This is where the potential lies you know, for enlightenment is how we are meeting our experience. If we are kind of you know wanting only these things and not those things or can we really kind of see that, you know, that uh, constant uh, you know, acting out of preferences and this is where we have to uh, point you know, our awareness, our mindfulness towards. And you know, making that a bigger space so we can have more capacity to just receive our experience. And then of course, you know, there is sometimes an appropriate action to make, you know, to protect ourselves, but not coming from aversion, just coming from, you know just coming from common sense really. Of course we need to, you know, take on of our clothes when it's hot and put on more clothes when it's cold but there doesn't have to be aversion you know with it or fear to <coughs> so just you know notice what we are bringing to the experience and then uh, you know going underneath and seeing where it's how that is coming together and and Turning towards it rather than away from it, and then if we, you know, if we turn our awareness towards it, it starts to kind of, it starts to open up, it starts to reveal itself, and starts to kind of fall apart, and it loses its uh, power over us. And at the same time, it's it's a food, you know, actually for insight, because without those experiences, we can't have any insights. Because we need uh, you know, need, uh, need a, what's called like soil for wisdom to grow, and all of our experiences are are that very soil, and nothing cannot be used for that you know and for example, you know, our feelings you know which which are you know a big um, power in our lives. I mean, this is an evolutionary inheritance, you know, which we have as as sentient beings, you know, since millions and millions of years, they are with us, and and without those feelings, you know, we wouldn't have been able, you know, to to evolve as as a species, and all the other species as well, because, you know, those feelings, they tell us, where to, you know, where is danger, for example. And they help us in a very split second we can make a decision you know, like when you put your hand on a hot plate uh, on a hot stove, you know you pull it back it's a good thing, isn't it? But then you know if we live together with other human beings and we we react in that way when it's not any when it's not necessary, and we you know we have to be able to discern those feelings and when it's appropriate to act on them and when it is not appropriate to act on them. And so we have to learn, you know, to uh, not be so much ruled by those early parts of our our brain and to kind of train the later parts of our brain. And sitting in meditation is, is a technology actually which which does exactly that, you know. It helps us to train those later parts of the brain so that they can uh, contain and, you know, put the earlier parts of the brain into the right place. They are very welcome, you know, to give information, but they shouldn't be the boss, you know, of the system because they are much too coarse. Because if you uh, interpret everything in terms of, of of you know can I eat it or can it eat me or can I mate with it or can I not you know this is a very very rudimentary approach to life that lacks a lot of social skills which are necessary if so many people live together on such a small planet So you know it, it gives us a distorted distorted view and because it's so strong you know we need uh, to train ourselves to to be able to receive these strong feelings without getting carried away by them and also you know, in like other concepts I'm I'm speaking now to you in concepts because this how it, there's no other way to communicate, and I, I very much like this saying, you know, of Rumi, he says, language is like a, a tailor shop where nothing really fits completely, and especially you know, when it comes to speaking about uh, spiritual practice, is especially the, the language is very um, limited, and mostly, you know, it, it can only function... As, as a pointer and you know just trying somehow to point in a, in a direction and then if if you know if we don't really then look in the direction of those pointers if we get stuck on the pointers themselves then it's you know it's, it's just like an intellectual uh, feast maybe you know and Maybe you know, like discussions and and who read how many books and has been sitting with how many different teachers. But what's really important is to put it into practice and to really bring it home into our own experience because then it's uh, going to, you know, make those cracks into this armor of, uh, you know, projections which we are bringing to our experience. And then, you know, it, it starts to fall apart and. It starts to, you know, be. It starts to become a liberating practice. It liberates us from our own past, and it, you know, opens us up to that which has always already been here, but we just couldn't connect with it because we were so completely uh, imprisoned in in our conditioning. And one, one other example, you know, to, to bring that home is, I'm quite sure, you know, have you all heard about that constellation in, in the sky which is called the Big Dipper? I think, you know, even people who don't know anything about stars, everybody knows about the Big Dipper. So if you look at the sky, you know, and you, you, when I ask you, you know, can you see the Big Dipper? Of course I can see it, you know, but is it really there? Of course it isn't really there. It's just like a certain constellation of stars we have learned to identify. And now, you know, when we look at the sky, even if we don't want to see it, we can't help seeing it. And that's, you know, that's a very good example for how conditioning works, you know. If you never heard about it, you certainly couldn't see it. But once, you know, you have seen it 10 times or 20 times, you can't look anymore without seeing it. And that's exactly, you know, how it is with conditioning. You know, in a conventional sense, this is a really good thing because it helps us, you know, to live together and and to you know to not have to invent a wheel every morning when we get up. That would be, I don't know what that would be, but so there is, you know, there is some. Uh, function in all of this, in this conventional experience, which we all share, you know, as we have quite similar experiences as human beings in this realm, with, with slight variations according to our conditioning, but a lot we have in common with the six senses, for example. And then, you know, through the practice we learn to, to understand that there's more than this there is more than the six senses there's that which knows the six senses because if if that wouldn't be if awareness wouldn't be we wouldn't be able to experience anything but because we are usually and also caught up in our experiences we are not aware of awareness and this is what the practice you know wants to enable us it wants us to wean us off from from conventional experience and open up that possibility for becoming aware of awareness itself so you know to kind of weaning us off from the addiction with with, the, with sense experiences and turning us towards the knowing of our experiences and, you know, and, and that's, that's a, a, a gradual path and sometimes it's faster and sometimes it's slower depending on, on our practice and, you know, there are different schools teaches in a different way, some uh, depending probably you know, on the people who have been creating those schools of thought. And, you know, some speak of it in terms of, you know, it's always already here and it's just not, we are just not aware of it because we are so identified with our conventional experiences. It's like, for example, you know, like an artist who, you know, has a block of stone and can see already the sculpture in the stone. And you just have to, you know, remove here a little bit and there a little bit and here a little bit and there a little bit and here it is. That's, that's one way how we can uh, approach the practice. It's always, we are already enlightened, but it's all, you know, overlaid with lots of layers of conditioning and we just need to remove those layers through insight. And the other way is, is to just grow you know, grow the inside like you would grow a, a tree for example, you know, you're starting with a very little seed and then slowly slowly through attending to it it, it starts to grow. And you know there's two different ways of looking at the practice they both work and i'm I like I like more the first one with it's already always here. It makes makes me feel more reassured that it is possible because sometimes it feels like very uh, difficult you know to stay. To have that faith you know when one is really in a very difficult parts of one's life where everything seems to go wrong so to say for some time so yeah and then coming back to what i said in the beginning you know to use our emotions to use our experiences rather for opening up ourselves to a bigger experience than to kind of you know cave in, and and just become it, and become an ever tighter knot of poor me, you know, who is not getting what she wants and getting what she doesn't want. And I think you know that's that's something you can definitely taste in 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 this retreat very very easily. I you know when you have the next time some difficult thing coming up. Just try to just sit like this. And and allow yourself to to really feel it and at the same time feel the hesitation, you know, feel how you're meeting this. Because this is where where the transformation occurs. And this is something not so difficult to remember. You know, whenever there's a sense of struggle, it's like a wake-up call. Not just don't do this, you know, poor me and blah 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 blah. Just do it like this and stop. You know, stop becoming it. It's not so difficult to do. It's just difficult to remember sometimes. Thank you. <laughs>